The red star came and went. The prophecies of Gehenna grew silent as the week of nightmares likewise became a memory. The destruction left in its wake, the annihilation of all but a scant few members of a clan, was a cataclysmic event. Yet the ivory tower did not fall. The sword of Cain was not poised at the throat of the grandchild of Cain. Yet they feel it, that inexorable pull towards the eastern and southern Mediterranean. The Levant and Maghreb. Those of old blood can do naught but obey this strange summons, laying down their tools, their ambitions, their riches as they flock to the Middle East, taking up arms against the dreaded force of the Sabbat in a conflict now known as the Gehenna War. This beckoning grips the heart of many an elder, some who fight it with all their might, devising new and increasingly desperate measures to stave it off as they cling to the powers and riches they have amassed for themselves. Yet the beckoning does not cease, but only grow in strength, leaving the Camarilla headless and flailing, and Scylla and Neonates forced to step up and assume command over an organization several times their own years in age. The demands upon its members are stricter, the tolerance for anarchs lessened, and the use of advanced technology heavily controlled, if not outright forbidden. There is no Shreknet, the mortal witch hunters having found and taken it down. The anarchs swell in size as the ivory tower grows ever more paranoid and selective in who they invite to their elite club. The young embrace the new, unafraid of the torches of the Second Inquisition, joining forces with the Thin Bloods, half-alive creatures with powers beyond the wildest imaginations of their elders. Berlin has fallen to the Anarchs, its Prince Gustav Bredenstein dragged out and killed by those he considered inferior to himself. The Vienna Chantry of the Tremere has been destroyed by drone strikes of the Second Inquisition, and the kindred population of London has been gutted punctuated with the decapitation of Queen Anne. Yet even as Mithras' servants rise to try to bring their ancient lord to awaken, as the Tremere struggle to right their broken and tattered pyramid, and as the princes of Berlin's surrounding cities consider their next moves, they all feel the pull of some other force from the Middle East. It is the beckoning. By the turn of the 21st century, the eldest of the Sabbat began to move, followed soon by the noddest of their sect, inspired by Sasha Vikos who had seemingly ventured to those lands earlier, establishing a foothold and acquiring local servants and slaves. The war of the East Coast in the US between the Sabat and Camarilla had redrawn many of the maps, but in a brief span of time, all but a skeletal crew of Sabat loyalists had up and left for their crusade, following in the footsteps of Vikos, who was now referred to as the Martyr of Cain. In 2003, the Camarilla would try to employ the mortal institutions to crack down on the Sabbat. They achieved the death of Jalan Ajav, Seraph of the Sword of Cain, but in so doing, put in motion a chain of events that would completely alter their future. The NSA, the Society of Leopold, the CIA, and countless other intelligence agencies around the world began to put the puzzle pieces together. Yet by 2005, there were hardly any Sabbat remaining among the mortals to pursue, and thus their targets became the Camarilla and the Anarchs. And while this was going on, the Sabbat would begin their war against the Antediluvians in earnest. They had learned from the Week of Nightmare, or perhaps they unknowingly replicated the mistakes of the Indian Ravnos. 
Kindred blood would be shed in unquantifiable measures. Childer embraced and sacrificed the very same night, and Methuselah hunted down and slaughtered, drained of their blood in a mad orgy of diablerie, all in order to rouse the ancient creatures who spawned their clans and slay them to secure freedom from their manipulation. The Ashira, a Middle Eastern sect of kindred similar to the Camarilla in structure, suffered great losses at the hands of the warriors of the Sabbat, and a pact was forged between them and the Camarilla, sealed with a blood wedding of Victoria Ash and Tigirius, the vizier of the Banu Hakim Duat. Not all elders have left their holdings, at least not yet. Some gorged themselves on the blood of their lessers to stave off the call of the beckoning, ignoring the age-old ban of the amaranth in order to preserve their fraying sanity and self-control for just one night longer. Others have felt the bonds snap, like Critias, who was an unwilling puppet of his sire Menele for so long that when he finally regained his freedom, he barely knew who he actually was. Scarred by a deeply ingrained paranoia of this being yet another move in the chess game of the Jihad. Others, like Helena, an ancient Methuselah and the enemy of Menele, succumbed to the call as well, and even traveled as far as Tunisia where she feasted on the blood of a whole retinue of Ashira kindred. Yet as soon as she was done, she no longer felt the call of her sire beckoning her, and she returned to America. Was it the Founder's desire that she merely kill these kindred? Or was it their blood in her veins that allowed for a moment of clarity? She has not felt the call after that night. At least not yet. Many young kindred are thrust into the role of inheritance. They administer and supervise to the best of their abilities the vast assets and holdings of their now missing sires, given vague instructions at best, left only with the keys to some vault at worst. They inherit untold riches and power, certainly, but not the skills or oversight, unless their former masters had the wherewithal to leave behind a trusted ghoul servants or careful and elaborate documentations. Another thing inherited, of course, would be the former master's enemies and rivals, all of whom may now be eyeing hungrily the treasure trove left practically unguarded. The beckoning makes little logical sense in the modern nights. Kindred embraced recently are experienced in using mortal proxies for their warfare. It is safer and more efficient to employ a couple of squads of trained mercenaries to find the tombs and havens of ancient beings, your enemies or both, and have their torpid bodies dragged out into the sunlight. Yet it seems those afflicted with the beckoning do not think in these terms. It is apparently of utter importance that they themselves are present in these regions, which has made many Nodists theorize that they are there not merely to fight for their invisible puppet master's sake, but also to be readily available to slake their ancient thirst should it be required. Add to it that some elders simply vanish. They travel allegedly to where they are beckoned, yet they do not meet others of their kind, nor do they conduct any affairs publicly. Is it possible that this is all a plan concocted by the oldest still-walking kindred? That in order to avoid the Second Inquisition and the rising ire of the Anarchs and their movement, they are now secluding themselves until the embers burn out once more? It is certainly a possibility, and proclaiming to hide yourself in a massive war zone is, after all, not the worst idea, if your enemies will then go there to look for you. The Hekata, as a clan, are apparently completely unaffected by the beckoning, or at least so they claim. Augustus Giovanni, the former 
antediluvian of the clan, although such a title should perhaps not be granted to one born thousands of years after the event to which it alludes, is reported to have been destroyed by the Capuchin, and the Hecata seems in many ways a different clan entirely than both the Cappadocians and the Giovanni. It is theorized that bloodlines such as the Sameri, the daughters of Cacophony, or the Gargoyles do not in fact feel the pull of their clan's founder, as they are no longer a clan per se, so one might theorize then that this was the ultimate goal of the so-called family reunion, the creation of a new clan no longer bound to the will of an ancient, well, not quite as ancient being. That being said, another theory also argues that Cappadocius is said to have summoned his offsprings to the Feast of Folly, which saw thousands of Cappadocians locked away under the ground, forced to feed off each other and then eventually succumb to torpor. This event, some believe, may have immunized the clan, so to speak, from further influence from their founder, who, all things considered, is probably amongst the dead anyway. Another curious event of the beckoning is the Lasombra's decision to join the Camarilla. There are no clear words on exactly why the Amichinoctis, the ruling body of the clan, decided to abandon the sect that they had played a pivotal role in forming, but it is thought that they realized that the antediluvian they had set out to destroy so many years ago, the one said to have been killed by Graziano de Veronese, never actually died. If this is true, then clearly the very premise the sect has been founded on, that these ancient creatures could be destroyed, and that the Lasombra and Simizzi were acting by their own accords, was still born. Perhaps they saw the events of India, the rise of Sabatazura, and crunched the numbers, so to speak, realizing that perhaps awakening these antediluvians from their age-old slumber was a poor idea, yet the Simizzi seemed to have so far not come to the same conclusion. Ultimately, all kindred of the seventh generation and below feel the pull of the beckoning, yet it is perhaps only a matter of time before those of higher generation feel it as well. Many Nodist scholars read with trepidations the words of Cain written in their old books, wondering if Gehenna actually did arrive with the Red Star, only that it would take longer to happen than any would have thought. This video was brought to you by my patron Brad Hardwick. I hope this rundown of the events of the beckoning was to your liking, and thank you so much for your support.